When you take a group photo, it's you with family, you maybe with friends, and that picture is shown to you by a show of hands, are you the first person you look at? Come on now, no, no, don't leave me hanging because I am. I am the first person I look at. In fact, the other day I was with some friends, we took a picture, and I looked at that picture and I was amazed. I actually look pretty good in the picture. That normally does not happen. I am not photogenic. I will ruin your picture if I'm in the picture. But what was funny is everybody else looked a little weird, you know. They were like, their eyes were closed. They had a weird facial tick going. And I was like, this is the best picture I've ever seen, you know. You know that little illustration, just a little humor. But you know what it tells us? We're all a little narcissistic. We're all a little into ourselves. Now listen, there's nothing wrong with that. There's nothing wrong with wanting to look good. There's nothing wrong with looking at ourselves in a picture. Of course not. In fact, there's nothing wrong with even having some good old-fashioned self-confidence, some good old-fashioned self-esteem. But you see, when we go too far with those things, that's when we begin to have some problems, you know? Maybe you have a spouse that's pretty self-centered, and anytime you plan something, all they can think about is, how will this impact me? Or maybe you have a colleague at work that tends to burden you with all their responsibilities, and before you know it, they're getting all the credit for the work you've done, and it makes you kind of mad. You know what I'm saying? Or maybe you have a friend that just can't stop talking about themselves, you know? And they kind of epitomize that famous quote, enough about me, tell me about you. What do you think about me, you know? And it's a blind spot. It really is. You know, that's why the Bible warns, do not be self-absorbed. Do not be self-centered. One of the most referenced words of Jesus in the Gospels is, in fact, that don't be self-absorbed. And there's two reasons why the Gospels tell us that. There's two reasons why Jesus says it over and over in the Gospels. You check it out. You'll see it. The first one's theological. See, when we think life revolves around us, when we're self-absorbed and self-centered, we tend to operate out of a mindset of arrogance and pride. And that will keep us from God's grace. You see, we've got to humble ourselves. We've got to realize that we've fallen short. We need God's help. We need his grace that comes through faith in Christ. That's why the Bible warns against being self-absorbed. But the other reason why it warns against it is just very practical. See, when we think life is all about me, 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 listen, people won't like us. And it affects our relationships in a negative way. That's why the Bible warns against it. But you know, there are a number of researchers, psychologists, sociologists today who point to narcissism being on the rise in America. In a recent book entitled Narcissism Epidemic, psychologists and clinical, clinical psychologists and doctors Twinge and Campbell conclude that not only is it on the rise, and they point to some troubling statistics, but they also show that it's becoming more culturally, more socially acceptable in America. And I want to read a quick excerpt from their book. They say this, we didn't have to look very hard to find it, self-absorbed behavior. It was everywhere, they said. On a reality TV show, a girl planning her 16th birthday party wants a major road blocked off 
so a marching band can precede her grand entrance on a red carpet. Wow. It's now possible, I, don't, I didn't know this, it's now possible to hire fake paparazzi to follow you around, snapping your photograph when you go out at night. You can even take home a faux celebrity magazine cover featuring the pictures. A popular song declares with no apparent sarcasm, I believe that the world should revolve around me, and on and on it goes. And then they, they cite those troubling statistics I referenced earlier. Based on a survey of 37,000 college students, they show that 25% of them agreed with the majority of items on a standard measure of narcissistic traits. And that's up significantly from prior surveys. See, they would step back and say, it's on the rise, and it's more culturally acceptable in America. Now, there definitely would be others that would push back a bit and say there's nothing different about today's generation than prior generations as it relates to self-centeredness. There's nothing different. Now, they would agree, yeah, it's more apparent. It's more in your face, given the technology and the digital era and the social media, like Facebook and YouTube and Twitter, that kind of showcases the self in, in all its glory. But they would argue, since the beginning of time, since people have been walking this planet, self-centered thinking has always been with us. But listen, no matter where you stand in the debate, they all agree with one thing. Narcissistic thinking, self-centered thinking is pretty prevalent in society. And I think that makes our topic pretty relevant today. See, we're continuing our series dealing with difficult people, and today we're going to be focusing on how do you manage the narcissistic person in our lives? And for that, I want to turn to an interesting story found in Acts chapter 8. We're going to have some fun. This is a neat story. It's some humor in this story. Acts chapter 8, if you have your Bibles, verses 9 through 24 is what we're going to look at. Now, the story is about a man named Simon. You may know him as Simon the Sorcerer. He is the narcissist in the story. And we're going to look at some of the narcissistic characteristic traits through the lens of Simon. And then we're going to look at how the Apostle Peter responds to this narcissist. So if you're ready, we're going to start, we're going to dive right into the word, Acts 8, starting in verse 9. Now for some time a man named Simon had practiced sorcery in the city and amazed all the people of Samaria. He boasted that he was someone great, and all the people, both high and low, gave him their attention and exclaimed, this man is rightly called the great power of God. They followed him because he had amazed them for a long time with his sorcery. You see, I almost picture Simon as a modern-day David Blaine or Chris Angel, you know? And he was doing these tricks, and, and the people of Samaria were amazed. And right in the opening verse, verse 9, you can see how arrogant Simon was. I mean, it says he boasted that he was someone great. But not only did he think he was great, it tells us here in this passage that the people of Samaria thought he was pretty special too. In fact, they referred to him as the great power of God. And you know what I find interesting? He didn't push back at all on that. He's like, that's right, I am the great power of God, you see. 
Simon loved himself. The people loved Simon. Things were pretty good for Simon. He was the man in Samaria. I mean, he was the man. But things were about to change for Simon. We learn in the seventh chapter, the chapter right before this chapter, that there's a great persecution breaking out among the Christians in Jerusalem. In fact, the seventh chapter ends with Stephen being murdered. He was the first Christian murdered. He was stoned to death by the Sanhedrin. And the Bible tells us on that day, a great persecution broke out among the Christians there. And a number of them fled to Judea, and the rest of them fled to Samaria. They literally all left, except for the apostles. They all left Jerusalem. And we read that Philip was one of them that came to Samaria, to where Simon was. And he was like an evangelist. He was sharing the gospel. He was leading people to faith in Samaria. Pick up the passage with me, verse 12. But when they believed Philip, as he proclaimed the good news of the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. Simon himself believed and was baptized. And he followed Philip everywhere, astonished by the great signs and miracles he saw. You see, people were losing interest in the great Simon, And they were coming to faith in Christ through the ministry of Philip. In fact, it tells us even Simon believed and was baptized. But you know, it's very important to understand what Simon's belief was fixated upon. See, the passage says here he followed Philip everywhere. Why? Because he was astonished by the great signs and miracles he saw. He was fixated on the signs. He was fixated on the miracles. That's really what interested Simon. Hey, have you ever tried to get a toddler, a little toddler, to look at something you wanted them to see? Maybe it's a bird out the window, and you're like, hey, little Johnny, look, look at the bird out the window. Often, what do they look at? your finger, and they completely miss what you want them to see. That's what's happening kind of in this passage. See, Philip, through the signs and wonders, is pointing to Jesus. But Simon, he's just staring at the finger. He's just staring at the wonders and the signs and the miracles that Philip is performing through the power of the Holy Spirit. Now, let's just put ourselves in Simon's shoes. I mean, at one point, he was, he was the big cheese in Samaria. People loved him. He was doing those tricks, you know? And then in comes Philip with the power of the Holy Spirit. He's probably healing the blind and the lame, and it's making Simon's little tricks look pretty insignificant. And Simon's like, I'd love to have that power. Oh, I'd love to do what, I'm, what, 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 what Philip's doing. And he misses the complete point of it all. Pick up the verses. Verse 14, pick it up with me. When the apostles in Jerusalem heard that Samaria had accepted the word of God, they sent Peter and John to Samaria. When they arrived, they prayed for the new believers there that they might receive the Holy Spirit because the Holy Spirit had not yet come on any of them. They had simply been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus Then Peter and John placed their hands on them, and they received the Holy Spirit. 
Verse 18, when Simon saw that the spirit, had, spirit was given at the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money and said, give me also this ability so that everyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. You see, we learn from this passage that Simon was pretty much full of himself. He boasted about himself. He wanted the power of the Holy Spirit in order to elevate and give glory to him. And then he was so arrogant that he thought he could literally buy the power of God. And I think verse 19 kind of summarizes it beautifully. Just look at, just look at the personal pronouns that Simon uses. Give me also this ability so that everyone on whom I lay my hands on will receive the Spirit. Hey, do you know people like that? Me, I, my kind of people? Dr. Judith Orloff, clinical psychiatrist and professor at UCLA, developed a really concise quiz. Just five questions. I think we have them. We can put them on the screen. Just five questions as to, as to well, whether or not we can determine whether or not we're in a relationship with the narcissist. Here they are. Question number one. Does the person act as if life revolves around them? Question number two. Do I have to compliment them to get their attention or approval? Number three, do they constantly steer the conversation back to themselves? Number four, do they downplay your feelings or interests? And finally, if you disagree, do they become cold or withholding? Dr. Orloff says if you answer yes to one or two of these questions, you're likely dealing with a narcissistic type person in your life people that are concerned with their image, their entitlements, their control. People that are willing to manipulate others in order to get what it is they want. There are people often that lack empathy. They lack care and concern for the feelings of others. And as a result, they are people that are willing to trade off, the, trade off basic human values like care and concern for the feelings of others in order to elevate themselves. And they're people that are agenda-driven. What do I get out of this? Rather than relationally driven, how will my actions impact others? And there are also people that do not see the error in their ways. See, make no, make no mistake about it. Dealing with self-centered, narcissistic people in our marriage, in, in our families, with our friends, in the workplace can be extremely difficult and trying. So what do we do with it? How do we respond? Well, let's take a look at how Peter, the Apostle Peter, responds to Simon the narcissist. And you're going to see, point number one, if you're taking notes, point number one, how do you respond? You confront your anger. You confront your anger. See, after Simon offered to pay Peter money, look at what Peter said. May your money perish with you because you thought you could buy the gift of God with money. Peter's like, what? 
I mean exclamation point, he is angry. You have no part or share in this ministry because your heart is not right before God. Oh yeah, Peter's angry. No doubt about it. You know, sometimes as Christians, we think it's not right to be angry. That there's something wrong with that. But you know, there's nothing wrong with being angry if there's something legitimate to be angry about. In this case, Peter's angry because he sees Simon's arrogance. He sees Simon distorting the truth of the gospel message in his words. He's angry. You know, we see Jesus in Luke 19. He gets pretty angry when he sees the the injustice going on in the temple, the money changing, the gambling. And and, and he, wow, was he angry in that passage. In fact, there's over 350 references in the Old Testament alone to the anger of God. We see God getting angry over evil, God getting angry over sin. God gets angry over injustice. See, there's nothing intrinsically wrong with anger. As one once said, anger registers displeasure. Anger prepares us to defend ourselves against an attack. Anger is an alarm that goes off that says there's something wrong in the world. There's something wrong in our lives. Hey, have you ever been angry with the self-centered ways of other people? Perhaps they put you down in order to elevate themselves. Perhaps they give no consideration to your feelings or your opinions, and they just do what they want to do. How do you respond to that anger? Do you ignore it and hope it goes away? What do you do with it? Do you kind of settle into this mode of thinking that denies the actual problem is happening and you actually accept the routine frustrations, the routine confrontations as everyday normal living? You know, this is just normal. What do you do with the anger? In a book entitled Stop Walking on Eggshells, the authors, both clinical psychologists Mason and Krieger, say one thing you don't want to do is that. And there's a part in that book that specifically deals with people who have to manage the narcissistic, self-centered person in their lives. Say, you don't want to do that. In fact, they say, you don't want to be a sponge. That's what they call it. You don't want to just sit back and take it in. You don't want to sit back and soak it all in. And the reason is threefold. Number one, they say, if you do that, you will just perpetuate the problem. If somebody's putting you down in order to elevate themselves, if somebody's ignoring your opinion and ignoring your feelings to just elevate what their feelings and opinions are, listen, if you don't do anything about it, they're just going to keep on doing it. Just perpetuate. It's the problem. Number two, they say it's also likely going to lead to depression. When you keep anger in, it leads to depression. The relationship doesn't get better and you get depressed. And then number three, we all know this, When you keep anger in, and you keep anger in, and you keep anger in, it's called pent-up anger. What happens with it? It just erupts. And what happens is you begin to lash out at that person. You begin to attack it. You're, You're like, what? And you're in their face, right? That's what happens. 
You know, the Bible says anger is not sin. The Bible also tells us you can sin in your anger. And one way we sin in our anger is when we attack the other person, the self-centered person. When When we begin to hate them, when we become vengeful against them, when we want their demise, we sin in our anger. So you say, okay, this is great. I have anger. Don't ignore it. Great. I won't ignore it. Don't attack. Great. So what am I supposed to do with my anger? Well, do what Peter does in this passage. You see, Peter doesn't attack Simon. He does not attack him. If you look at the passage carefully, he doesn't attack him. But you know what I'm amazed by is that Peter doesn't ignore it either. See, there's a unique relationship here meaning there isn't one. Simon and Peter really don't even know each other. I would have thought Peter could have just blown him off, but yet he doesn't. And I believe the reason why Peter doesn't is because Peter's anger is coming out of a heart of care and concern. Not only for the truth, when he sees Simon's words distorting the truth, But I also believe, if not even more so in this case, I believe he's responding out of care and concern for Simon. You say, wait a minute. Come on now, look at what Peter said to Simon. He said, may your money die with you, you know. Care and concern, I I don't think so. But when you stop and think about it, you see, Peter saw in Simon a man that was self-destructing. Peter saw in Simon a person that thought he was in the faith, but he wasn't. Peter saw in Simon a man who was heading to hell. And Peter was cared enough and was concerned enough for Simon that he confronted him. Was he angry? Yes. But I believe Peter confronted Simon the way Ephesians 4.15 tells us, speak the truth in love. That's what I see here in this passage. Point number two, we see Peter establishes a boundary here with the hope for change. See, after Peter let Simon know that he was upset with what he said, look at what Peter said. Verse 22, Repent of this wickedness and pray to the Lord in the hope that he may forgive you for having such a thought in your heart. For I see that you are full of bitterness and captive to sin. Peter looks at Simon and says, you need to stop doing what you're doing. You need to repent. You need to turn away. You need to stop thinking life is all about you, Simon. And you need to pray to God that he will forgive you of your arrogance. And what Simon, what Peter does here in this passage is he establishes a truth boundary. And this is what he's doing. He says, the truth is the gospel message that you come to faith by humbly yielding and accepting the free gift of eternal life found in Christ. That's the truth. And Peter in this passage is telling us, I value the truth. 
And he says to Simon basically this, Simon, you can think what you want to think. You can say what you want to say. You can do what you want to do. But listen, the truth remains the truth. And if your life doesn't align with the truth, listen, listen, he says to Simon, you will suffer consequence. And he points those consequences out in this passage. Number one, you will be captive to sin. Number two, you will think you're in the faith, but you're not in the faith. And as a result, you will suffer eternal consequences. And friends, that's what a boundary does. A boundary clarifies what it is you value. In this case, it's a truth boundary. And that boundary, that value, clarifies responsibility for everyone involved. And if you don't live in accordance with the truth boundary, there will be consequences. See, a personal boundary works the same way. A boundary is this. What is it that you value for yourself in this relationship that you're struggling with, in this relationship with this narcissistic, self-centered person? What is it you value? You may say, I value security. You may say, I value safety for me and my children. You may say, I value respect. You may say, I value that my feelings would be heard, that my opinions would matter. You may say in the workplace, I value work-life balance. What is it that you value? That's a boundary. And it clarifies the responsibility of everyone involved in that relationship as it relates to the value, to the boundary. And it frees you to act when the self-centered ways of others begins to compromise the value. It frees you to act. A number of years ago, oh boy, the years go by fast. I was probably just a couple of years out of graduate school. I worked for a large consulting firm, and I worked for a brief period of time for this pretty self-absorbed guy. Let's just call him Jim. That's not his name, but let's call him Jim. Jim was an experienced hire. We hired him from a client, and uh, I directly reported to him for this period of time. He was my boss. And on this one particular day, I was at the client site about 4.35 o'clock. The phone rings. It's Jim. He says, hey, Pat, do you mind coming to the office and helping me with this proposal? I said, sure. Of course, I really didn't want to. I mean, I worked all day. I really didn't want to. But I said, sure. You know, I I wanted to be looked at as a valuable resource. I wanted to help, you know. So I went to the office, worked throughout the night. The next day, I'm back at the client's site. About 4.35 o'clock, the phone rings. Who do you think it is? It's Jim. He says, hey, you mind coming to the office? I got a project. I really need some help. Could you help me? I said, sure. I drove to the office, worked all day, all night. The next day, the same thing. The next day, the same thing. And I began to realize this is a pattern with this guy, Jim, you know? And I began to realize that he really didn't know what he was doing. I mean, I was doing his work, what he was responsible for. I was working on his proposals. I was doing his work. I was working all these ungodly hours in order to bail him out, if you will. And his self-centered ways were really getting under my nerves, you know. They were getting under my skin. And you know what was happening? 
this guy was literally taking a job I once loved and he was making it a job that I hated. But when I stopped and think, thought about it, that really wasn't what was happening. You see, yes, he was putting all these requests on me, but I was allowing him to do it. And I found myself at a crossroads. I say, either, either, either I'm just going to keep doing this and kind of hate my job and be frustrated, or I'm just going to bail out and go find another job, or I'm going to confront the issue. About a week and a half or two weeks of this insanity went on, and I said, enough is enough. And so the next day, rather than going to the client site, I just went directly to the office. I said, I'm going to go talk to Jim. And let me tell you, I was nervous. I mean, I reported to this guy. I was nervous. I didn't even know what I was going to say. I remember walking down the hallway, approaching his office. I took a deep breath. I knocked on the door. Jim said, come in. I came in. I said, Jim, we need to talk. He said, sure, have a seat. I said, no, not here. I didn't know how this was going to turn out. For all I knew, it was going to be a yelling match. There was other people there. I said, no, why don't we go outside? It was a nice spring day. He said, okay. So we walked outside. I looked at him. I said, Jim, what you're doing is wrong. You're obviously having trouble doing things that you're responsible for, and yet you're expecting me to work all these ungodly hours in order to bail you out. Now listen, I said, if you need help, I'll help you. If you're in a jam, I will help you. But to consistently do what you're doing is wrong, and I'm not going to do it anymore. Now, I didn't know this in my 20s, but I I established a boundary. I said, I value work-life balance. I said, I value not being taken advantage of. I value something, you know. Now, I didn't know how he was going to respond. And I was shocked at how he responded. He he just looked at me and said, I can appreciate your frustration. It was actually a pretty cordial conversation. Very brief. It was done. Very quick. And I was like, "Woo!" Let me tell you, I felt good. I felt, I was patting myself. People, what is he doing? I was just patting myself on the back. 15 minutes or so later, I'm in the office. I get a phone call. It's Tony. Tony was the national partner in charge of the practice. It's who Jim reported to. He goes, I just got off the phone with Jim. I said, I'm sure you did. (laughs) He said, Jim said, you're a slacker and you're lazy. Thankfully, I worked with Tony before and he knew otherwise. Long story short, things worked out good for me. They didn't work out so well for Jim. But the point is this. Anytime you want to confront your anger and establish a boundary with a self-centered person in your life, listen, it's risky. It's very risky. It may lead to greater tensions and frustrations for a period of time in the relationship. Hey, the relationship may end. You may get fired. It's risky. So you got to expect some friction. You've got to expect some tension when you do this, but you have to remember why you're doing it in the first place. 
Why did you establish the boundary in the first place? Because the boundary represents a value that you're willing to fight for. Dr. Henry Cloud said this in his book, Boundaries, a great book from a Christian perspective. He said this, Setting personal boundaries lets people know the seriousness of the trespass and the seriousness of our respect for ourselves. This teaches them that our commitment to living according to helpful values is something we hold dear and will fight to protect and guard. But you know, that don't make it easy to do. It's not easy to confront your anger and to do it the right way. It's not easy to draw a line in the sand and say, this is my boundary, enough is enough. Especially, listen, especially if that self-centered narcissistic person is your spouse or a family member that you have a very long history with. And so when we do this, listen, oh, not only do we, this is a given. We need to be close to God. We need to be yielded. We need to be seeking the wisdom of the Spirit in how we go about doing this, no doubt. But I also think it's very helpful to have a support group that can help you through this, maybe even a good Christian counselor that can help you develop the courage it takes to do it and the wisdom, this is important, the wisdom it takes to do it the right way. I love Proverbs 15, 22. Without counsel, plans fail. But with many advisors, they succeed. They succeed. You know, we started today with some lighthearted humor about how we're all a little narcissistic, you know. And then I began to think, hey, how does God view me in my relationship to him? Does he see someone who's more interested in my will rather than his will? Does he see in me a person that makes decisions, even big decisions, without giving much care or concern for what God thinks? You know, God, hey, I got this, I got this. Does he see in me a person that uses the gifts and talents that he blesses me with for my ego, for my glory? And when I ask that question, how does God view me in my relationship to him? I couldn't help but think, am I a bit more narcissistic than I would like to think I am? And the reason my mind went there is because I was looking for that perfect story of Jesus dealing with a narcissist in the Gospels, you know? And then we could gain some lessons from that story. But when you stop and think about it, that is the story of the Gospels. It's about God responding to the self-centered ways of humanity. And he comes in the person of Jesus Christ, through whom we have wonderful, a wonderful picture of the very character of our Heavenly Father as Christ walked among the people, as that is captured in the Gospel stories. But not only do we have that, we, we have Jesus dying on a cross for the sins of the world. You know what sin is? 
When you boil sin down, you know what it is? Self-centered thinking. That's at the heart of all sin. My will, not your will, God. My will, not your will. And Philippians 2 tells us that Jesus carries out that mission with a heart and a mind of humility. So when we think about the difficult people in our lives, when we think about the self-centered people in our lives, when we think about confronting our anger, when we think about establishing boundaries with a hope for change, may we do it out of a heart and a mind of humility. Because, you know, I don't know if you know this. I'm sure you do. You're a smart group of people. But, you know, humility is absolutely required in order to come to faith in Christ. And humility is absolutely required to grow in our faith in Christ. You know why? Humility screams, I need help. God, I need your grace. Recently, I was reading a biography on the great Martin Luther King, the great civil rights leader of the 60s. And in it was an excerpt from a message that Dr. Martin Luther King gave back in 1954. The title of the message was Overcoming Self-Centeredness. And he shares a story of how he would often go to the Kirby prison in Montgomery, Alabama. And he would go and pray with the inmates there. And he said on this one occasion, as he was about to leave the prison, he said, a thought hit me hard. And I want to close out the message quoting Dr. Martin Luther King. And he said this, as he was leaving the prison, this is the thought that came to him. He said, I could not leave the prison with arrogance. I could not walk out with the feeling that I'm not like these men. I could not walk out with the attitude of the Pharisees. I thank God that I'm not like these men. But as I walked out of that door, something was ringing in my heart. But for the grace of God, you would be here. As I look at drunkard men walking the streets of Montgomery and of other cities every day, I find myself saying, but by the grace of God, you too would be a drunkard. As I walk out, as I, as I look at those who have lost balance of themselves and those who are throwing away everything on self-centered living, I find myself saying, but by the grace of God, I too would be here. And then he said this, when you see that point, you cannot be arrogant, but you walk through life with a humility that takes away the self-centeredness. And you begin to sing, amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saves a wretch like me. Hey, let's have the same mindset when we deal with the difficult people in our lives. Let's pray. Father God, we just thank you. We thank you for your word, Lord. We thank you, thank you for how practical it is in everyday living. Your word is the truth, and it 
Oh, it is so powerful, so relevant. And we thank you for that, Father God. And Father God, I just pray for those that are here today that are dealing with those self-centered, narcissistic people. I pray, Father, that your grace would be upon them. I pray that you would give them through the Spirit the courage and the wisdom to do the right thing in accordance to your word in order to establish the values that you would want for them in that relationship. Father God, we are so thankful for your word. We are so thankful for the truth. And we give you all the glory. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.